So here I am, the last in the lineup. <laughs> we have quite a, quite a good group of teachers here, and yet I'm on the, the, this end of the, of the line. So I'm very happy to be here teaching you this evening. Tonight, I would like to speak about wise effort. And I wonder what happens for you when you hear that I'm going to speak about effort. Because sometimes when we hear the word effort, particularly effort in our practice, what can happen is we immediately start to think, oh, no, <laughs> that inner groan, like she's going to tell me that I have to put more effort into my practice. And, or we might uh, start to think that we're not, we start to evaluate ourselves, that we're not putting enough effort in, and we could, you know, get into this whole kind of mental idea about what effort is. And I think that a lot of us don't really have such a good relationship to the word effort, particularly in our daily lives. We, uh, particularly uh, if you live in a, a city, and you're very active, very involved in your life, you might find that you're uh, going a lot, putting a lot of effort into the things that you do. You might be under stress a lot. And there can be an association with the word effort that it's quite tiring, quite exhausting. We can feel uh, con con constricted or contracted in ourselves when we even consider the word effort. So many of us may have some associations with that word. When I first started practicing, I, I started mostly in the uh, Mahasa Sadao tradition, and there was a lot of emphasis on effort. This is a number of years ago. And the uh, association with effort, with the, the encouragement around effort, was more like uh, heroic effort, to put heroic effort into your practice. Practice as if your hair was on fire. Practice as if you were going to die tomorrow. You know, and there really was a very, very strong uh, sense of this is it. You know, you've got to do it right now and put all this effort into your practice. And I did. I put a lot of effort into my practice. And I probably put a lot of heroic effort into my practice. But when I look back on it now, I see that I didn't really fully understand what it meant to uh, practice in a, with balanced effort, or wise effort. And that's what I'd like to explore tonight, is this uh, balanced effort or, or wise effort. I think it takes time. I think it's something that all of us need to find for ourselves as we start to explore our own practice, when we start to sense into uh, how, how we are actually, uh, what, what kind of effort we are putting into the practice, what kind of, um, it, are, there, are there intentions of, of striving or going after certain experiences or wanting uh, certain results in our practice? Or do we find ourselves being um, somewhat lackadaisical or somewhat um, lazy sometimes? And, and probably we can find ourselves moving back and forth between 
those different ways of being at different times. And so through the reflection and through the uh, sensing into what's most supportive for our practice, we begin to understand more and more how to apply uh, effort in our practice. And we mature, we grow into our practice. And, and as we uh, uh, develop, we understand this m more and more, and this balanced effort comes more easily. And you might notice that in yourself, if you've been uh, practicing for a long time, if you've done a lot of retreats, you might consider the difference now, uh, what your relationship is to effort as compared to how it was um, some years ago or, or when you first began your practice. Because my sense is it's something that we really need to grow into. And it's, almost, it's almost intuitive as we start to settle. But yet I want to explore some of the ways that uh, this is talked about in, in the teachings, in the Buddhist teachings, to see if there's something that can be useful for us, something that can help us, support us in our practice while we're here. Wise effort. Uh, is one of the uh, factors on the Eightfold Noble Path. And it's in the division of um, what's called samadhi, the samadhi division. Uh, the Eightfold Path is divided into the first two factors, which are uh, Anna talked about last night, one of them which was wise view and wise intention. Those two factors make up the first division, which is the wisdom division, the development of wisdom in our practice. Then the th uh, next three, uh, uh, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, make up the division of morality, or sila, how we uh, live in the world, our actions in the world, our, the underlying foundation of our, of our, of our virtue, of our uh, morality. And the third division is the division of samadhi, or concentration, or meditation. And it's made up of wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And so very much uh, what we're doing here has to do with this particular division, as much as the others. I mean, every one kind of feeds into every other one, um, which is the real beautiful, uh, the beauty of the Eightfold Path. But we're the, the, uh, this division really has to do with the mental training, the development of the mind, training the mind. Because until the mind is really trained, it is somewhat reckless and heedless. It kind of goes here and there. And we can, the, the old habit patterns, our old habits and tendencies act out. And we don't have a lot of ability. We don't have a lot of uh, capacity to keep the mind uh, here, to keep the mind present, to, to allow the awareness and the wisdom to penetrate our speech and our actions and our choices and our, our movements. And so through the, the practice of wa wise effort and mindfulness and concentration, we begin to stabilize the mind. And when the mind is stable, the emotional life becomes stable. We start to experience more emotional stability in ourselves. Because as you've already seen, when the mind kind of goes all over here and there, the emotions can stir a lot as well. 
when the mind goes into the past and has memories and associations of things that happen, emotions really get stirred up. And not saying that that's a problem, not saying anything's wrong with that, but we can actually use that process as we start to touch into some of the unconscious material or some of the emotional material that uh, is triggered from the past. With the mindfulness, with concentration, and uh, some understanding of wise effort, we, can, we, can, we know how to work with that in a much more skillful way. We're not just pulled by these forces of mind and forces of our emotions here and there, but we really start to uh, be able to bring some real wisdom to uh, what's happening in our mind and our body. So the emotional stability is also what begins to awaken our heart. Because we can feel into our heart. We're not just caught up in the emotional life, but the heart qualities, the pure expression of our love and our compassion and our joy, our equanimity, we really start to feel more of the connection with life because we're present, because we're here. We're here and the mind is settled here. The mind isn't pulling us all over into past and future, which can, not always, but can obscure our connection with this present moment. And when that's obscured, we may not be able to uh, establish that kind of relationship with the present and the present experience in a way that we can fully take in the experience, experience the totality of what's happening, and have our, our heart be moved by what's happening in the present moment. So we bring in this emotional stability through training the mind. Traditionally, when the Buddha talks about effort, there, he, he talks about what's called the four great efforts. And I think what is maybe more helpful, a word that's sometimes more helpful, is maybe saying the four great endeavors. Because when we think about what we're actually putting effort in for, it's really very great. It's a great endeavor. Because when we talk about wise effort, what we're talking about is the effort that is going to liberate our suffering. The effort that is going to transform our mind and our body into the awake presence, into, into wisdom, into love, into compassion. The effort that is going to bring us into contact with who we truly are, with our true nature. This is what we mean when we speak about wise effort. It's effort that is turned towards what's called the wholesome. Effort that's turned towards the wholesome. And what's wholesome is anything that leads us towards liberation. Anything that leads us towards freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from our suffering. Freedom from the pain that we feel in our life. And the Buddha's declaration that it is possible for us to be free. It is possible. And so the effort is the, the wise effort is the effort that moves us towards this wisdom, this awake wisdom of ourselves. So it's talked about these four great endeavors that put an end to suffering. 
And it's mentioned a number of times, I, it's particularly one text that I did read. I haven't read the whole of the Pali Canon, that would be heroic. Um, <laughs> but I did uh, study the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length uh, sayings of the Buddha, uh, just to really understand more deeply what the Buddha actually taught, um, rather than, uh, I, I know what Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield teach, but I really, really wanted to know <laughs> what the Buddha taught. <laughs> <laughs> and actually find out if what they were teaching is what the Buddha taught. <laughs> I found out that they are teaching what the Buddha taught. <laughs> so uh, the, in the Majjhima Nikaya, in this particular text, the, the, the four great efforts are mentioned a number of times in some different discourses, so there is a certain emphasis put on these efforts. And I don't want to go into them in too much depth because I also want to talk about the balance of effort and how it really applies to our practice here. Um, so I want to talk about these two aspects, both these particular four uh, great endeavors, but also the practicality of it here for us. So the four great efforts are, in a simple version, to avoid is one, and overcome is two unwholesome states of mind, to avoid and overcome unwholesome states of mind. So one, two of them have to do with the unwholesome states, and then two of them have to do with the wholesome states. So the other two are to arouse and to maintain wholesome states. And so we make effort to avoid effort to overcome, effort to arouse, and effort to maintain. That's the simple version. Then it starts getting a, it gets a little bit more complex. Um, when we say the effort to avoid, what the Buddha talks about is the effort to avoid unwholesome states before they arise. Hmm? to avoid them before they arise. And then the second part of that is the effort to uh, overcome unwholesome states that have already arisen. So it's interesting, there's two, these two parts there. We can do some practices to contain ourselves, to support ourselves, so that the unwholesome states don't even arise like what you're doing here. This is such a beautiful um, uh, example of coming to a retreat in such supportive conditions of silence and sangha and teachings and meditation. And the conditions here are actually very supportive for have not, not stirring or triggering some of the tendencies of mind and body that get triggered when we're out in the world and we're out in relationship, and we're interacting, and we're talking to each other, and, and all the things that happen when we are in relationship. If you just look at it from that particular layer, so much has already calmed down. Certainly there's a lot that's still being stirred in your own mind through contact with your own memory, contact with the mind, but you're not actually having so much contact directly with others. So, so much has already settled down. That would be 
an effort to avoid unwholesome states before they arise, coming here would be one. Another one is um, a wise restraint of the senses, of the sense doors. And it's something we practice here as well. I mean, we haven't put out to you not to make eye contact with other people, but generally that's something we sort of fall into quite naturally. We guard our sense, we guard the eyes so that we're not looking directly at other people. We're not kind of, we're not bringing that energy forward to other people, but there's a kind of a guarding of ourselves, a protecting of ourselves as we move around. This is a way of keeping some of those emotions from getting stirred by having that more direct contact. But also go f- to go further, to res- we can, uh, but with our practice, we can restrain the eyes by not just letting our eyes go to everything that we think is beautiful and attractive, because that can stir some desire or longing. Some people see this, particularly when we're in such intimate contact with other people. Other people can begin to look very beautiful, and we can start to be attracted to that beauty. And we have to be somewhat careful, particularly to know what's happening at the emotional life, so that we're not actually uh, reinforcing that to the extent that it's taking us away from our practice. It might be something that's, that's uh, the desire might be arising for another person, and, and there may be ways that that can be incorporated in the practice. It's not saying that anything's absolutely right or wrong in this. But we look at that. We say, is this taking me away? Is the way that I'm getting involved in this, in this attractive being or this attractive object, is it taking me away? Or in a similar way, when we get pulled out to, uh, to objects or beings that we feel a lot of aversion for, we feel hate for, or we get triggered by things that they do or things that we don't like, and we get caught there again and again, and, and, and this can stir up the aversion, stir up the ill will. So maybe we need to restrain ourselves a little bit, not just let the mind keep going out to that person or that object. Say, no, I need some restraint here. This is what can, uh, uh, the effort to avoid the unwholesome states before they arise. The the effort to avoid and the effort to overcome are often kind of uh, merged together because we can see that they can happen somewhat quickly. Um, When I was in, I spent a lot of time in India and I have a very aversive mind. I think we all kind of see which way our, our, our minds uh, tend towards, they can t- tend towards greed or they tend towards aversion or, or, or confusion. Um, mind definitely goes to aversion. And when I was in India, uh, there was a lot that was very unpleasant <laughs> on the one hand, <laughs> a lot. Uh, smells and sights and uh, the sensations and, and at all levels of the, of the senses. And um, a lot of very, very unpleasant um, images and, you know, people dying in the streets and the poverty and the, um, the cruelty and the, the, uh, the, just the, the corruption. I mean, so much goes on, plus just the filth and, and everything. I mean, there's so many beautiful things as well. But my mind would go to that which was so unpleasant. 
And I would get into these very depressed kind of aversive states and just say, I don't want to be here, I hate it, I don't, why do I keep coming back here? And I was traveling once with a friend, um, and he really helped me, because sometimes I would actually say, look at that person, or look at that animal, and how really horrible, and what condition they're in. And he would say, look at that woman in that beautiful sari, and the color of that sari. And I'd turn, and I'd go, oh, yeah. And then I'd look down in the mud and the gutter. <laughs> but look at that mud and the, you know, that, that cart is stuck in the, he said, well, look at that, look at that parrot and the colors on the, and the sound of that. And he, he would just keep reminding me that I didn't have to turn my mind into that, uh, uh, into the image or the object that was continually catching me in my, averse, my aversive state. And it was such a good practice for me, because I saw that I really could turn my mind in a different direction. It was really just the recognition, the mindfulness, the awareness that that was happening. That was how my mind was. It's the habit, the habit that just wants to go back to the familiar, the familiar pattern, or the familiar groove. And the practice is to be aware of that and to see if we can turn the mind, incline the mind in a different direction. The Buddha said, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders on, that will become the inclination of their mind. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders on, that will become the inclination of their mind. So these efforts have to do with that basic teaching. How are we turning our mind? And to bring awareness to that, because the Buddha didn't say that we shouldn't look at anything. He didn't say that we should withdraw from the world, withdraw from people, and not have any contact. And he didn't say it because it's not possible. As human beings, we live in the world, whether we're uh, living in seclusion or we're living out in relationship and social life, we are in contact. We are in relationship. And so, so we're looking at how to come into relationship with ourselves, with others, with the world in a way that is wise, that is conscious, that is awake. And so we pay attention to how our mind is turning. So he said to avoid the unwholesome states, to overcome the unwholesome states, but also to turn the mind towards what's called wholesome, to arouse the wholesome, and then when they're aroused, to maintain them. Before I go on, I want to just point out that we could have a little bit of difficulty with the words unwholesome and avoiding. And I think this is where we have to be so careful because we, as we really start to explore and to look carefully at ourselves, we, we might, if we take these teachings too literally, we might then say, well, any time that I have like, anger, aversion, that's unwholesome and I have to avoid it, or I have to overcome it. And if we take it that literally, we one, we could judge what's happening in our mind and as bad 
it shouldn't be happening, it's unwholesome, I'm really a bad person, then it's arising, so I need to avoid it. And then there can be a way that we can cut off from the experience before it's actually had a time to, uh, to m- mature enough so that we can understand it, so that we can really come into a relationship where, where we can put some wisdom and light on that mind state, and then through that wisdom it can start to release. So I, I want to point out that I think that probably one of the ways to bring effort to avoid is not to cut off, but if we think about it more in the long range, the long range, that as we bring more understanding to what's happening in our mind and body, then these difficult mind states that arise that bring us some suffering start to settle down and start to release. Anna talked last night about the importance of actually meeting our experience fully, totally. So I want to just clarify again and kind of highlight here that one of the skillful ways of working with difficult states when they arise is to, one, to notice how the thinking mind is getting caught up in the story. How the, thought, how the sto- thoughts, how we can get so caught up and identified with the story that we're actually not really with what's happening at the feeling level or at the emotional level. And I think it's so important as a practice to see if we can disengage from the storyline enough so that we can come in to the, the experience of what's actually happening in our, in our feelings, in our body, in our emotions. Because so often we can be cut off from that. And there's so much wisdom in what's moving through at the emotional, emotional level that as we come more fully into our body and actually feel our body, then we are bringing a kind of a spaciousness of our mindfulness to the whole experience, which allows it to move, to shift, and to, for us to understand more of what's happening. And then through that, it can slowly release, because we're not as identified with what's happening within us. So it's so important not to take this teaching as a cutting off, avoiding or overcoming. It's, it can just, the language can seem a little bit too strong for, for the subtle understanding of what's really implied here. So meeting is not in uh, um, conflict with this teaching that we've been giving of meeting your experience totally coming into your experience totally, that's really what shifts the identification. When we're identified, we can not even be that conscious about what's happening, so we can't work very skillfully with our experience. So we bring the totality of that into our awareness, into our mindfulness. That's what brings the healing. That's what brings the possibility of these unwholesome tendencies not to arise anymore. And we have to be so careful about these words, wholesome and unwholesome, not to get too dogmatic about it, 
so that we don't fall into judgment of bad and good and right and wrong. But everything that moves through us comes for a reason. It's showing up because it needs our attention in some way. Some understanding that needs to arise for that. You can see that this time is going very quickly. Mm-hmm. So much that I want to say to you about this. So just briefly, in terms of the arousing and the uh, maintaining, so the effort to arouse wholesome states that have not arisen, these are primarily the, what we're practicing here. Um, uh, uh, ca- uh, ca- it's in the category of the seven factors of enlightenment. Arousing mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, where we're arousing these factors of our, of our being, bringing them into manifestation, arousing these wholesome states. Not only these, but also the qualities of the heart, the, 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 uh, the Brahma-viharas, metta, compassion, joy, equanimity, which is also one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Any quality of our being, generosity, truthfulness, morality, patience, all of these qualities, arousing these um, qualities, these wholesome states that have not yet arisen. And then the fourth one, the effort to maintain wholesome states that have already arisen. <coughs> not just noticing that, noticing that they're here and then letting them go. Sometimes we can, you know, we hear so much about letting go, letting go, letting go. And I love this part of the teaching because it says maintain these states, don't let them go. See what needs to happen to nurture, to support, to encourage these states, these beautiful states of mind and heart. Don't cut through, don't let go, but really feel. What's the quality when the heart is filled with love? What's the, what's the experience in the body? What's the experience in the mind? What's the energetic quality that's present when, when the heart is open? When there is happiness, when there is calm, when there is mindfulness, all of these different factors. Really getting to know it so that the more that we know it, the more we can encourage these states to be present. This is the teaching. Arouse and maintain these beautiful states of mind and heart. There's one um, uh, teachings, poem, prose, whatever, that we usually talk about when we're talking about effort. And in the old days, it used to be the, the teaching on um, the parable, oh no, it was the teaching on the guitar strings. And you probably all heard it, you know, uh, that wise effort, you know, is you can't have your strings too tight, you can't have your strings too loose, because then the sound of the guitar won't be very, very uh, beautiful. Um, have you heard that? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but I, it comes from a, a, a teaching of the Buddha, which is really very beautiful, and I, and I want to read it. Because I, I think it also gives you a feeling for the way that the uh, uh, teachings of the Buddha have come to us. Um, because it's very much, this is, the, this is a particular translation of what's called the parable of the, the, parable of the lute. And when I mentioned to Gil that I was going to read this, he said, you know, it's not, they don't really know if it was a lute or not. <laughs> he, there's a particular Pali word, which I can't remember, that he said, and he said, they don't know what that is. So they're just calling it a lute. <laughs> so it was some kind of a stringed instrument during the time of the Buddha, but for all uh, uh, intents and purposes, we'll call it a lute. Once the Blessed One lived near Rajagatha on Vulture Peak. At that time, while the venerable Sona lived alone and secluded in the Kul Forest, this thought occurred to him, to the venerable Sona. Of those disciples of the Blessed One who are energetic, I am one, yet my mind has not found freedom. Now, the Blessed One, perceiving in his own mind the venerable Sona's thoughts, left Vulture Peak and as speedily as a strong man might stretch his bent arm or bend his stretched arm, he appeared in the cool forest before the Venerable Sona. And he said to the Venerable Sona, Sona, did not this thought arise in your mind? <laughs> of those disciples of the Blessed One who are energetic, I am one, yet my mind has not found freedom. Yes, Lord. Tell me, Sona, in earlier days, were you not skilled in playing stringed music on a lute? Yes, Lord. And tell me, Sona, when the strings of that lute were too taut, was then your lute tuneful and easily playable? Certainly not, O oh Lord. And when the strings of your lute were too loose, was then your lute tuneful and easily playable? <coughs> Certainly not, O oh Lord. But when but when, Sona, the strings of your lute were neither too taut nor too loose, but adjusted to an even pitch, did your lute then have a wonderful sound, and was it easily playable? Certainly, O oh Lord. Similarly, Sona, if energy is applied too strongly, it will lead to restlessness, and if energy is too lax, it will lead to lassitude. Therefore, Sona, keep your energy in balance, and in this way, focus your intention. <coughs> Yes, O Lord, replied Venerable Sona. Afterward, the Venerable Sona kept his energy balanced and in this way focused his attention. And the Venerable Sona, living alone and secluded, diligent, ardent, and resolute, soon realized here and now, through his own direct knowledge, that unequaled goal of the holy life. Isn't it lovely how these end? <laughs> <laughs> But, is it, but I like this translation, the Venerable Sona soon realized, here and now, here and now, through his own direct knowledge, not through some believing something or, or taking on something that somebody said, realized the unequaled goal of the holy <coughs> life. So this is a really sort of the, the pith teaching for us, not too tight, not too loose. 
And this is really what we all have to examine in our own practice, what that means for us, because there really isn't a recipe for how that looks. Somebody who looks very relaxed and isn't really coming to sittings or, you know, maybe taking long walks, that might be exactly what that person needs for their practice to kind of unwind from being too tight and too contracted. And somebody who looks like they're putting a lot of diligence and effort into their practice and it may, might look tight, actually that might be exactly what they need because of something else that they've done. So you can't, it, you can't tell it all from the appearance, which is good because it means we really can't compare or judge ourselves with others even though we do it quite a lot. <laughs> So when we're too tight, I think that one of the things that really does lead to being too tight in our practice and that tightens our energy is when we do get caught up in uh, uh, wanting certain results. When we want too much from our practice, whether it's on a long range or even a short range, you know, even one sitting or one five-minute period, when we get attached to having special experiences, certain experiences, when we we put too much emphasis on the kind of experience that we're having, and we start to imagine that our meditation has something to do with our experience, and we forget that it actually has to do with the development of wisdom and insight. I think this is really one of the primary traps in our practice is when we get caught up in the kinds of experiences that we're having. And so we might really want to take a look and to, to, as we examine the way that we are applying our effort and our energy, to see if we're putting, we have too much investment on what's going to happen at any particular time, either for a meditation or for the whole retreat or whatever it is. It's really a question of being disciplined but relaxed. Having the intention for good practice, but at the same time relaxing in our practice. This balance, this beautiful balance of intention, the wholesome intention, and the letting go. The intention and the letting go, which are really two sides of the same coin. In every moment, Tension, directing the practice, and then letting go of the result. So that we're not clinging or getting uh, identified with the outcome of what happens in any moment. So watching the way we might get attached to our experiences. We need to be watchful of ways that we might get into a kind of performance with our practice or a competition you know, maybe caring about what other people think or how other people see us. I can remember early in my practice when I was doing my, oftentimes doing my walking meditation and a teacher would walk by and I would just get so contracted, you know, because I wanted to look like a good yogi and I wanted to look like I was doing good practice. And now I actually see that teachers really don't notice very much. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, I always thought that teachers had such an eye, you know, on everything they were doing, you know, so there was always this big self-consciousness, which really would tighten me, tighten up my energy, make me much too tight, but just to let you in on the inside. <laughs> we don't notice so much. I mean, a little bit. We keep our eyes on you, but not so much. <laughs> So being watchful of these ways that we, we get tight in our practice. Being too loose in our practice. Anna was mentioning that this morning as well, you know. Noticing how many naps we might be taking or times we're spacing out or not following the schedule, drinking cups of tea, taking longer walks, taking time uh, to, to write or to read or whatever, just to, to, to look at that. You know? is that. Is that leading to more a liberation leading to more freedom in our practice. And I think we need to give a little attention to this balance of um, self-care and self-indulgence. You know, and I know, I think particularly um, here in, in Marin County, uh, a lot of us, the white middle class, you know, we, we have a lot of privileges and we can do a lot of really kind things for ourselves and do a lot of things to take care of ourselves. And there may be a way that we get into a habit of doing a lot of things to take care of ourselves. And even though it is kind, it may be a kind of indulgence, whether it's around you know, sleeping or, or eating, um, taking uh, longer walks or, or, or these kinds of things. Um, I think sometimes we need to give a little reflection to if we are, this kindness has turned into a little bit of what uh, one teacher called kind of a muddled kindness that isn't so helpful for our practice. You know, maybe we do need to eat a little bit less or take a little uh, sleep a little less. Or I think all of us have to really look at where that edge is that can really bring a little bit more energy to our practice, you know, when maybe sit a, bit, a little bit longer, or, or if the walking, we find ourselves walking 20 minutes and stopping, maybe walking a little bit longer. You know, where, where is that edge where we are being kind, but kindness expands, it has a, a bigger, broader kind of definition, a kindness in our practice that is also putting an effort to really awaken, to really be, to really be able to transform some of these uh, habits of mind, bring more mindfulness and, and uh, attention to, to, to these edges in our practice. But we have to be very careful here, because a lot of people aren't so kind either. So, so it's, a, it's a very delicate edge that I just want to mention, where we could bring possibly a little bit more energy into our practice as we explore that. And all of this leads to what's called a natural effort in our practice. An effort that leads to effortlessness. Where we may find and we may feel or may experience times where we really don't need to put much effort in at all. But there's a way that we feel connected to a flow, kind of a dynamic flow of life. And there's not so much sense of ourself being involved in doing, and actually not so much of a sense of ourself 
involved in not doing. But a way we've kind of, the sense of ourself has sort of dissolved out of that polarity. And we feel, at times, we can feel this effortlessness of the practice happening by itself. Thoughts come by themselves, emotions come by themselves, sensations, sight, sounds, taste, smells, touch, the, the joy in the practice, or whatever it is, the, the emotions, whatever. It's all just happening by itself. And we can sometimes feel like we're in the stream of life. And I think it's very important to recognize times when you, the, the, the energies, your energies have come together into a balance where you see that you don't have to really apply your effort. There really isn't so much to do. But there is a, a kind of inner relaxation, an inner letting go, a, 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 a resting in this dynamic experience of life that is unfolding moment after moment after moment, all by itself. And this sense of ourself just doesn't seem to have any place, but it is just part of this nature. It's part of this dynamism. In fact, we're not even able to find the boundary of this sense of ourself so much at those times. The thoughts and the feelings and the sensations and all the, the, the sights and sounds, it's all just happening in this, this great flow of life. Hmm. Did I lose some? That one? Here it is. Okay. This might have been read on the last retreat because it's something that we love and we read a lot. It's from a Tibetan Rinpoche, the Vajra song. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is actually there in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do. Whatever arises in the mind has no importance at all because it has no reality whatsoever. Don't become attached to it. Don't pass judgment. Let the game happen on its own, springing up and falling back without changing anything, and all will vanish and reappear without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it, it is like a rainbow which you run after without ever catching it, although it, does not, although it does not exist. It has always been there and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are all like rainbows. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is there, open, inviting and comfortable. So make use of it. All is yours already. Don't search any further. Don't go into the inextricable jungle looking for the elephant 
who is already quietly at home. Nothing to do, nothing to force, nothing to want, and everything happens by itself. So I think more succinctly, one Tibetan Rinpoche said, there is nothing that has to be done, and there is nothing that has to be undone. This is the effort that we put in, the effort that lead us to effortlessness. All the effort that we put into our practice is leading us to this very beautiful and rather mysterious experience where we don't have to do anything at all, but we can rest in the joy and the magic of this dynamism. So perhaps you might want to reflect on how you're using your energy throughout the day. Put a little time into looking at that. Are you trying to get something? Are you trying to build something up? Are you holding on to your experiences? And then to have a sense of what it's like when you're not trying to make things happen really sensing into that experience, feeling that experience, when, when your energies come into balance, when you're just where you are, when you're just meeting experience right where it is, right as it is. And I'll just end with... Um, this poem that one of my students wrote after a retreat up in Canada. I've read it before, but I think that it's, it's just so personal and it really expresses this very gentle balance of effort in one's practice. Perhaps you'll hear this coming through. It's called Witness. I'm taking the scissors snipping a seam here, a buttonhole there, unraveling the rose, but slowly and carefully, no tugging with impatience, resting, remembering how this sweater used to keep me warm during those terrible dark days of crying for the cold I couldn't keep out. So in the unraveling, I am gently turning and winding the crimped, bent strand of wool, making a solid round ball of yarn with which to knit my new jacket. And even though it's winter and my skin stands bare against the ice wind, I feel warmer than I have in years. Let's just sit for a moment together.
Thank you for your attention.